From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA News Center Audio Programs Managing Editor Steve Miller. Welcome, Cindy and Steve. It's great to be here. Thank you, Kim. Real pleasure. Well, here are the issues. Ukraine called for its grain exports to continue passing through the Black Sea after Russia withdrew this week from an agreement allowing safe passage. Analysts say any new arrangement needs the cooperation of Turkey. Ukraine accused Russia of damaging grain export infrastructure and strikes focused on two of its Black Sea ports, vowing not to be intimidated from working to keep grain exports moving out of them. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said a U.S. soldier willingly crossed the heavily fortified border between South Korea and North Korea on Tuesday and is believed to be in North Korean custody. The incident comes amid heightened tensions between Washington and Pyongyang over North Korea's nuclear program. Israeli President Isaac Herzog marked the 75th year of Israeli independence on Wednesday in an address to the U.S. Congress. His visit to Washington comes amid concerns about Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's controversial judicial overhaul plan and Israel's continuing conflict with Palestinians. A target letter sent to Donald Trump suggests the Justice Department investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election is zeroing in on him after more than a year of interviews. Such letters often precede criminal charges. A global pattern of heat waves scorching parts of Europe, Asia, and the United States intensified this week, with the World Meteorological Organization warning of an increased risk of deaths linked to excessively high temperatures. The warming pattern came as U.S. climate envoy John Kerry met with Chinese officials in Beijing and expressed hope that climate cooperation could redefine troubled ties between the two powers. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Cindy, Russia attacked the Odessa region after pulling out of a deal that allowed the safe passage of Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea. These strikes in Odessa, are these Russia's retaliation for a blast that damaged its bridge to Crimea, which it seized from Ukraine in 2014? Yes, well, Russia has called its attack on Odessa a mass revenge strike, as you mentioned, for the Ukrainian attack on the Russian-built bridge linking Crimea and Russia. And the State Department has come out very strongly against the Russian missile strikes, which have destroyed at least 60,000 tons of grain and damaged storage infrastructure, and said that this was an attack not just on Ukraine by Russia, but that Russia was using grain as a weapon of war, and basically against the whole world, and especially against countries in Africa and Asia, which are dependent on this grain. All eyes at the moment are also on Turkey, which plays a very big role in the Black Sea. But we have Turkish officials saying, look, you know, it's going to be difficult for us to escort these ships coming in and out because our ships would be a big target. So it's a difficult situation. Right, Cindy. And one of the things that you know Russia has said is that any ships moving through the Black Sea could be considered military targets. And that's one of the concerns is that during the Black Sea Grain Initiative, there was a safe passage arrangement. But now that the deal has fallen apart, it's unclear what could happen to any 
vessels traversing that waterway. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has said he's going to try to escalate the conversations with Russian President Vladimir Putin ahead of their August meeting to try and see if people can get back to the table to you know, renegotiate the deal and see if movement can be made on meeting Russia's demand that their concerns are met so that grain can once again flow. Because as you mentioned, you know, 60,000 tons of agricultural products were destroyed in Odessa over the course of three days of continuous overnight attacks. Yes, and as you all brought out, a new arrangement could take time, and people are already feeling the effects of Russia pulling out of the grain deal, which at least 400 million people around the world are dependent upon. So in the meantime, how is the international community responding? Well, Kim, you know, one of the things that if you hearken back to the early days of the war, there was a really concerted effort to try and move grain over land routes out of Ukraine, whether it be by rail or, or by road. But that was hampered in the early onslaught of the Russian attacks throughout the country. And the issue of different gauge rails between Ukraine and other parts of Europe. So they are continuing to work to try and facilitate grain transfers. But as you mentioned, you know, the grain is there. Russia has said that some of the port facilities are now being considered military targets. And as we already mentioned, you know, 60,000 tons of products have been collateral damage in these attacks. So they're trying to step up and move forward. And other countries around the world are trying to increase their own production because of the increased prices that are a side effect of the grain not flowing. People at the State Department and others are saying, look, what is the end game here also for Russian President Putin? Because moves like this are an affront to countries in Africa and Asia. It is not going to help his status on the international stage, which U.S. officials say is already so diminished by the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. This week it was announced that Putin will not attend, at least not in person, a meeting in South Africa because of fears that he could be arrested So the State Department says this all just points to his greatly diminished status, which is of his own doing. And this attack on grain is not doing him any favors either. Yeah, those are some really good points that you both raised. And moving on to our next topic, North Korea stayed silent so far about its detention of a U.S. soldier who dashed across the Korea's heavily militarized border, even as he had been ordered to return to the United States to face possible discipline and discharge from the military. And Cindy, you have been covering this story. Can you tell us more about it? Yes, well, we're learning him more or less by the hour. And this is a very curious, fascinating story, you know, with the plot twist. At first, I was sort of thinking, well, how could someone accidentally cross the border? But now we know that this private ran across the border. And one eyewitness said that he was laughing as he ran across the border. And it's looking more and more like that not only was this a willful and intentional crossing from this U.S. soldier who was stationed in South Korea into communist North Korea, but also it looks like it probably took some planning because others who were on this group touring the joint security area said basically had to send in your passport information and other information days in advance. So as you said, Kim, he was at the airport after having served time in a detention facility for assault of a South Korean national, and he was facing what looked like probably disciplinary procedures in the United States and must have decided 
that he would take his chances in going to North Korea. And another fascinating thing for me to learn and talking to North Korea experts is this is not the first time that an American soldier has crossed willingly into North Korea. We don't know if he defected, but there have been cases in the past. But it was a long time ago, like in the 60s and 70s, of some Americans who defected. And North Korea used these Americans in propaganda movies, making them sort of, you know, the evil American. And two of them, at least, were married to Japanese women, Japanese nationals, who I believe had been kidnapped by North Korea. And they were kept in a special area only for foreigners. So this is a fascinating thing, which seems to have happened before. As you were mentioning, Cindy, it was truly fascinating to hear the hour-by-hour developments as the reports were coming in, because as someone who lived in South Korea for almost a decade, had been to the joint security area for a number of tours, I was really caught off guard about how this happened. And as we learned the details, oh, he was dropped off at the airport, he made it through security and then fabricated the story that he didn't have his passport to leave and not get on the plane. And then as you mentioned, Cindy, you have to supply your passport to the tour operator to get vetted by the UN before you actually go on the tour. And listening to the firsthand accounts, they were in the buildings on conference row. They were in those buildings. They came back and as they were walking towards the South Korean side, he just took off and ran across the demarcation line. And it was truly bizarre. One eyewitness said that they thought they were filming a TikTok video for social media. And it's really unclear as to what his ultimate motives were, because, as you mentioned, he was facing a disciplinary action. Yes. And also, as you brought out, Cindy, a witness said that he was laughing when he was doing this. So it just makes the story even stranger, his disposition in this. Right. It does, Ken. As you both well know, and many listeners also know, this is at a time of very fraught relations between the U.S. and North Korea. This puts mainly the Defense Department in a very difficult position because they were asked if they were concerned about this soldier might somehow give up secrets. They said, well, first and foremost, we are concerned about his welfare and we want to get him back to the United States safely. And there are conversations going on between Defense Department officials here and their North Korean counterparts, or at least the Pentagon says they have reached out and have not received an answer so far. And and as far as I know, as we're speaking now, I don't believe North Korea has commented on this. They're just sort of keeping on with their ballistic missile launches. So this throws a sort of another factor into an already difficult relationship. Correct, Cindy. Yeah, North Korea hasn't said anything about the privates crossing over into the border. The only thing they've said as of Thursday was that they were condemning the USS Kentucky docking in Busan, saying that the deployment of U.S. strategic assets were trying to up the tension and they were trying to use that as justification, perhaps that North Korea could further develop its own nuclear weapons. What is U.S. reaction to North Korea's firing of ballistic missiles? Traditionally, The United States, South Korea, Japan, and other actors in the area always condemn these ballistic missile launches. They cite that these are in violation of UN regulations, but North Korea has repeatedly not followed them and say they have a sovereign right to do so. So this is really more of the same that North Korea has done over the past several years in continuing to flout UN regulations that prohibit these launches. And they use it typically as a way, as many analysts have explained to me, as a way to bring the conversation back to North Korea to try and have concessions 
brought about to alleviate either trade restrictions or other financial restrictions or other conversations to hopefully abate the UN resolutions that prohibit these activities. So as many analysts have told me, this is par for the course, so to speak, the status quo. Yes, and we will just have to see that other aspect with the U.S. soldier now in North Korea, how that is going to develop or even add to the stress of U.S.-North Korea relations. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, Israeli President Isaac Herzog addresses U.S. Congress with hopes of strengthening bipartisan support for the country. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two, then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA News Center Audio Programs Managing Editor Steve Miller. Well, as we earlier mentioned, Israeli President Isaac Herzog addressed U.S. Congress on Wednesday with hopes of strengthening bipartisan support for the country. How significant was his visit to Washington? You know, this was not the first time that we've had a joint session of Congress and a high political figure give the address. President Herzog declared once again that the Jewish state's friendship with the United States is secure and forged these strong diplomatic bonds, saying that Israel and the United States are intertwined very tightly. But it's coming at a time when there is significant concerns about what's going on domestically within Israel, given the judicial reforms being pushed through by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. And even though Herzog really doesn't have a role in that, the president of Israel is more of a ceremonial position. There were a number of Democratic members of Congress who boycotted the speech. Yes, that's right, Steve. The speech did stir up some controversy here in the U.S., as Steve mentioned, with some Democratic members boycotting the speech. And then that prompted one Republican member to introduce a bill, basically a resolution affirming support for Israel, which passed on Tuesday with a bipartisan vote of 412 to 9. So, Yes, I think Israeli President Herzog, as Steve said, was trying to reassure critics in the Biden administration and mainly some Democratic lawmakers that Israel's democracy will stand and that the bond with the United States is challenged right now, but it is unbreakable. But with some Democrats pointing out that we can criticize the policies of the Netanyahu government, of overhauling the judicial system and putting more settlements in the occupied territories without being anti-Semitic. Even some of the progressive critics, you know, had to make clear that we're not trying to question the existence of the state of Israel. We're just questioning some policies of this particular government. And I think it's important to add, it's it not just U.S. lawmakers who are questioning some of the judicial reforms that are being pushed through by the Netanyahu government. Within Israel, there are reservists who are pledging not to report for duty in protest over these judicial overhaul plans. And there are concerns that the Israeli military may arrest reservists who do not follow through with that. And this is following days of thousands upon thousands of protesting in the streets. 
Yes, and also a recent March Gallup poll reported that Democratic sympathies were more in favor of the Palestinians at 49% than with Israelis at 38%. With the Democratic Party, it seems to be shifting regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So any indication as to why this is happening? I think probably it is what we've seen in recent weeks, again, some of the worst violence between the Israeli Defense Forces and Palestinian militants that we've seen in a long, long time. And we've seen attacks on refugee camps, and we've seen children and civilians being caught up in this. And those images are very disturbing. Yes. Let's move on to our next topic, where former President Donald Trump said he received a, quote, target letter, unquote, from special counsel Jack Smith of the Justice Department, giving him days to report to a grand jury investigating Trump's attempts to subvert the 2020 election and the January 6th, 2021 riot at the Capitol. Well, such letters are usually a prelude to an indictment. And if Trump is indicted, this would be his third indictment. So what effect are these investigations and indictments having on him personally and on his campaign? Well, in terms of the campaign, he's still the Republican frontrunner, and he has showed no signs of slowing down in terms of being able to fundraise based on these allegations that are being levied against him and the so-called latest target letter and perhaps imminent indictment in the 2020 election case brought about by the special prosecutor. What analysts have told me is that as these legal cases continue to mount, it could distract him in terms of diverting his attention from what he needs to accomplish on the campaign trail to pursue his nomination for the Republican Party and his duties to be in court, whether it be testifying, giving depositions or addressing those concerns. Because even this week, there was a ruling that his concerns are trying to overturn the ruling in the E. Jean Carroll verdict that was thrown out by a judge. He lost his bid to have the New York state case moved to federal court. So these counts of indictments, the time in courts are continuing to amass, and it's going to be perhaps difficult for him to split his time between his campaign priorities and his legal priorities. Right. And we have not actually seen the target letter yet, but reports say that federal prosecutors have evidence to charge former President Trump with three crimes, including conspiring to violate civil rights. And this statue is interesting because it was enacted to protect the civil rights of black voters targeted by white supremacy groups after the Civil War. The other two are obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States. And if we think what all this is about, if we remember back to January 6, 2021, then President Trump held a rally and encouraged his supporters to march on the Capitol at the very moment where the peaceful transfer of power was happening in the United States. We're hearing from reports that the investigation is centering on long-term efforts by former President Trump to get a slate of fake electors in these states where he was not expecting to lose but did, such as Georgia, and long-term efforts with this fake elector scheme to actually reverse and overturn the result of the 2020 election where Joe Biden clearly won. 
So this, I think, is a very important case for U.S. democracy, and everyone is kind of waiting to see. There are indictments, what the charges will be and how serious those will be. Some legal experts are saying that since this doesn't involve sensitive national security, such as the legal documents case, it could proceed more quickly. We're going to have to move on and get in our last topic. We are having a record heat wave in the northern hemisphere of the earth, including the U.S., Europe, and parts of Asia. A clear sign, some say, of how climate change is rapidly affecting our lives. So as we head into the 2024 U.S. presidential cycle, will this be a major topic of debate? That's a great question, Kim, because right now a lot of the topics have been focused more on U.S. domestic policy rather than than global global issues such as climate change. Uh, you know, for the Democratic Party, you know, climate change and climate responsibility is an important topic. But as we've seen in the United States, you have reduced water available through the Colorado River, which supplies water for many southwestern states and northern Mexico. In my old home state of Arizona. We've had 20 days so far of over 43 degrees Celsius and 18 heat-related deaths. If you go into Canada, we have the wildfires in British Columbia that have created massive amounts of smoke that have created health-related issues for northern states. You know, it could be a topic within the presidential campaigning season, but it remains unclear because there are perhaps more concerning topics on the mind of American voters, such as the economy and other issues. Certainly an important topic for the world, according to many people that I've spoken to, but it's unclear how a prominent role will play in the 2020 election. And also we have U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry. He met with Chinese officials in Beijing and expressed hope that climate cooperation could redefine troubled ties between the two powers. So does the U.S. really envision working with China to combat climate change? John Kerry had his visit in Beijing with his Chinese counterparts. And we look back a few years, right, when the Trump administration pulled out the Paris Accords, President Xi Jinping stepped forward and said that China would do more to alleviate some of the void faced by that and have China take a larger role in that. So there are important roles for the two largest economies in the world and two largest producers of carbon emissions to take a larger role. So it is a way to work together, as Kerry said, to kind of reignite ties and improve relations. But what the actual governing bodies are able to do and enact is, is a different story. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. Cindy, what is weighing on your mind this week? Well, actually, Kim, as we were just discussing, this whole heat wave and the global climate crisis has really hit home with me. And I think some scientists have been warning about it now for decades, and especially some young people in the world have been protesting. And when my skies are hazy because of wildfires in Canada or whatever, it does begin to hit home. And scientists have been saying that basically that humans have been, one scientist said, been damn fools. And now we have people in Florida, basically the water is almost too warm for swimming. Some scientists saying that this upward spike is happening at a pace not seen since the dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. So it has certainly caught my attention in a big way. Yes, very good. Thank you. And Steve, 
Well, a couple of things are weighing on my mind. One is the progression of the current Writers Guild of America strike, the SAG-AFTRA strike, and how that's affecting the entertainment industry and the technology issues that they're addressing in terms of AI being used for script writing or perhaps in the future for artificial actors in movies and television and how that comes to be. Because as we develop with technology, these are things that are going to become ever-present, not only for the entertainment industry, but for industries around the world. And the other thing is, this is the start of the Women's World Cup, and I'm excited to watch these athletes play. I enjoy that sport, and I'm looking for Team USA's debut game on Friday. Very good, and thank you. And we will end the show on those thoughts. My thanks go to our panelists, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA News Center Audio Programs Managing Editor Steve Miller. I'm Kim Lewis, and be sure to join us next weekend for more Issues in the News. <music>